right, everybody. Thank you for waiting. Um, we'll get started now. So thank you for coming to our event, Indigenous Knowledge and Nature in the Cities. Indigenous knowledge has existed in these places for tens of thousands of years. Knowledge of how and when to use resources, deep knowledge of the land. Today, we're meeting near the Birrarung, or the Yarra River. And around us, there was previously plentiful wetlands, billabongs, and water. Uh, it's an important meeting place for Aboriginal people, and it continues to be a significant meeting place for people all around the world. I acknowledge the tens and thousands of years for caring, of caring for country and pay my respects to the elders that have come before, the elders who lead us now, and the elders that will lead us in the future. Today, our panellists will be discussing a number of issues around nature in our cities from an Indigenous perspective, but also from their professional, ex professional experiences. This discussion follows, the works that, follows work that has been happening in the Clean Air and Urban Landscapes Hub and the Threatened Species Hub of the National Environmental Science Program, who have made this event possible. My name's Madison Miller and I'm a Darug woman and archaeologist. I'm the co-chair of the Indigenous Advisory Group to the Clean Air and Urban Landscapes Hub, working with researchers to start to change the research agenda and to start to articulate what Indigenous knowledge means in an academic context and ultimately find a way for Indigenous-led research so that SMOB can start forming the own, their own research agenda. So I just will ask our panellists now to introduce themselves and let us know a little bit about them. Nyata, Nyatu Kunditmara, Nyatu Nyat Linyong Rubenberg. Hello, everybody. My name is Rubenberg. It's said properly in language, but not in English. Uh, my name is Rubenberg. Uh, I'm a Kunditmara man. My family comes from a little place called Framlingham, down in Monable, in southwestern Victoria. Uh, and as a Kunditmara man, it is really important for me to recognise that this is not my traditional land here today. And I'd like to really thank Mandy for walking us to this place. Uh, and also I want to say that as I was sitting here watching the dancing, I was reminded of 1937 when the Commonwealth Government here in Australia uh, had this big conference and they agreed that Aboriginal people not of full blood should be absorbed or assimilated into the wider population, that Aboriginal people shouldn't have their culture anymore. And as I sat up here watching this display, uh, I imagine those people from that conference in 1937 having to stand here and watch this now and recognise how badly they failed at that. And to recognise that, you know, we, we cannot be stopped. We as people, we cannot be stopped. And uh, so that was really powerful. So I want to thank you for that. Uh, so, man, I've been involved in placemaking for quite some time. I have a background in architecture. I'm one of the founders of Indigenous Architecture and Design Victoria a not-for-profit organisation to try and strengthen culture uh, in, and design in the built environment. And I'm also a commissioner for the Victorian Environmental Water Holder uh, here in Victoria. Um, you already know who I am. But uh, just on the other sort of things that I do in my life, I am an archaeologist as well. Um, so um, I've been a single mum for most of my parenthood and I decided I need to educate myself and progress myself in academia and, you know, head for my dreams. So I did an archaeology degree with um, honours and I did Aboriginal Australian archaeology, which wasn't as um, popular, I suppose, at Monash Uni than La Trobe, which is the better one to do it at. But I did geology as a minor because I wanted to uh, sort of understand how science believes the earth and um, formations in the environment were formed. Um, from the scientific perspective. And then I was going to do my honours thesis on how this scientific view can back up uh, traditional creation stories. But, um, yeah, ran out of time to do that proper, properly, but I, I still have that in my mind that I want to do that in the future. But at the moment I'm at Deakin University uh, doing a PhD on connection to country when you live off country. So I think that's going to be relevant for all Aboriginal people. And I can incorporate those stories and those, those ideas that I didn't end up doing for my honours. And um, I'm really enjoying that. And I also include a lot of language in that because I worked at the Victorian Aboriginal Corporation for Languages for five years. It gave me the tools to understand language and how to translate. And um, I think the, the way forward in that is that the linguist there gave me 
a list of grammar that was common to all the Eastern Kulin that I was describing before, and it's allowed me to translate full sentences, songs, and, and all of those kind of things, rather than learning from a dictionary. So I think one of the problems with language learning from revival language uh, perspective is all the books are written for linguists, not for community. So we need to change that so we can share and learn language together as community. Yeah. Uh, my name's Brad Mockridge, uh, Camilleroy man from northwest New South Wales. I acknowledge country and thanks for the welcome and, and getting the spirits, the good spirits in and the bad ones out. Uh, it's an honour to be here. I'm sort of infiltrated Victoria at the moment. I'm only here for two days, but I'm born and bred on... Sorry. <laughs> born and bred on Maddie's land, Darug land, Western Sydney, and I paved my... I suppose, career there, and moved to Canberra on Ngunnawal land in about 2010. Um, I got a background in, I started in geology, and I found myself looking for uranium in a national park. So I come home and said, I can't do that anymore. I loved learning about the earth and how it was formed and all the structures and, and then moved to environmental science. I went from potentially digging it up to filling it in. Uh, and now... Uh, Career-wise, I've gone through local government, state government, uh, CSIRO and New South Wales government. I led the only Aboriginal water unit in the country for about five years until uh, Victoria come along. So I had to say we were the inaugural Aboriginal water unit. Um, uh, But the New South Wales government didn't like us and got rid of us. So I had 11 staff and they kicked us out and that was good timing for me. So I started a PhD in uh, traditional knowledge and water. Um, my other background is, is hydrogeology, so looking at groundwater. Uh, and at PhD full-time and in my spare time between 1am and 2am, I'm the Threatened Species Recovery uh, Unit and I'm the Indigenous Liaison Officer helping the, the Threatened Species Hub um, move towards Indigenous-led research, same as the, the Clean Air Urban Hub. And uh, it's, a, um, it's, it's a great challenge, and I suppose that's, I, I've got a threatened species hat on, but I'll, I will talk about water. Ah, thank you. So my first question, I guess it comes from, there's a, a principle within Aboriginal cultures, and I say Aboriginal cultures because there are hundreds of Aboriginal cultures within this continent. It's not just a monolithic culture. But an important principle that sort of transcends our cultures is this uh, idea of caring for country. And it's a really important aspect of many, of all of our cultures. And I just wanted to ask you, what does caring for country mean in an urban context? (laughs) Well, I was doing this talk yesterday at the, um, what was it? Remaking the Cities or something conference yesterday at RMIT. And everyone did their presentations about uh, different projects that they were doing. And I thought, you know, I just was mentioning about the um, linguistic books are written for linguists. The presentations were done for academics. So I suppose it's a conference for academics. But I'm I'm an academic, but I'm not really an academic. I don't want to become too academic, if that makes sense. I want to keep it real. So I got out there and just showed a lot of pictures and um, one of the diagrams that I focused on was all the different layers of country. I believe there's a lot of countries, plural, uh, associated with the term country in itself. So you've got the, what we're walking on on the ground, but there's what's below the ground. So that's the big gut, it's what's underneath, the underneath country. And then you've got the big dewey, which is the, the ground that you can feel with your toes. Then you've got the barnyard, the water country. And that's where life begins. And also from the below country, you get the ochre to paint your bodies for dance and ceremony. Then you've got the, what you walk on. You make sure that you don't destroy what you're walking on. Then you've got the banyot, the water country. There's life-sustaining values in water. We have the water, water ceremony, which is a ceremony that represents when visitors come, they have a drink of the water and then they, they feel culturally safe on country. Then we've got the murnmutdui, which is the wind country. So we sing and dance and everything. We sing, we talk in language and that gets blown around in the wind. 
And then we have our smoking ceremonies and the smoke gets uh, filtered through the wind as well. And then you've got the Wurrawurrudui, the sky country, and that's where the physical form of our creation beings live and they look over us because a lot of our creation beings are birds, flying creatures, so they're looking down on us. And then you've got the Tarangalkbik, which is the land above the clouds, and it literally means the forest country above the clouds. So what's on earth is fully mirrored what's up in the sky above the clouds. So in between all those different layers of country, you've got different pathways. So you've got the Karolk, which is the sun rays of the sun. Your soul goes up there when you die and when you go to sleep as well, but your soul returns to your body when you wake up and you wake up with a big snore. That means you've got lots of spirit because that snore back in your body is that your spirit returning. Um, and also if you've passed away, you go up that Karolk and you go into the Ngamat. It's a place. Ngamat or Ngamaji is our name for white man. And Ngamat means place of death because when people came to Australia, Aboriginal people thought, these are dead people because they were white. Their bodies were white. So when you die, your body turns white. So basically the word Ngamaji means, I'm telling you to go to that death place. Go back to where you came from. Go into that area where you frighten us, you, your evil spirits. So, and also another element of that country is Binbil the rainbow. And he's Bunjil's brother. And he connects the water, the, the underground, the on top of the ground, the water, and connects it to the sky country. So... Without one of those elements, all those different layers of country can't exist. So you can see that it's a whole lot of a more defined definition, a more in-depth definition of country rather than what we walk on with our feet. Mm. Ice poles. <laughs> yeah, beautiful. Uh, and I think what's really powerful about what Manny spoke about is that that's something that doesn't disappear. That's not something that's no longer here just because we have a city over there on the other side of Birrarung. Those things are still a part of these places, and that's what the principle of caring for country in the city means to me. Uh, caring for country is an overall idea that applies to many Aboriginal groups, which is about looking after the landscape, looking after it as if it is a person, as if it is someone you want to care for and nurture. Uh, you can take things from it, but you need to do so in a, in a sustainable, respectful way. And to me, the classic way that that is shown around us today is with the scarred trees that we can still find. Uh, and the scarred tree, to me, is that symbolism of caring for country, uh, and that's for those who are unaware, it's where bark has been purposely removed from a tree to make something. Could be you make, taking off some bark to make a canoe, could be used to make a shelter, a shield, lots of different purposes for removing that bark. Uh, and if you think about it, if you want to make a canoe, one choice you have is just chop down the tree, make a canoe. And that's fine, you've got a canoe, but the tree's gone. Now our ancestors work out, worked out that they don't need the whole tree. We can just take the bark from that tree. We can have our canoe, the tree still gets to live. And so that, to me, is a powerful reminder of this idea of caring for country. It's about sustainability. It's about only taking from the landscape and the environment those things that you really need. It's about not just being selfish about the things you want, but looking after that landscape as well, because by looking after that landscape, you're going to look after yourself. And those things apply just as well right here where we are in the city as they do in remote places, in regional places. And lots of times people just think about them applying other, other areas, we need to think about them because all those things that Mandy spoke about still apply right here in this city and that's, that's what it means to me. What they said. <laughs> that, was, that was awesome. Thanks. Uh, caring for country for me has, has a lot of similar uh, connotations and feelings and you know, everything's connected. It, it has its place. It has its story. It has its song. And you know, the sky, the land, the water, they're all connected and I suppose in a modern-day sense, it's hard for our old people to understand why they have a Department of Water, why they got a Department of Land, why they have a Department of Climate Change. You know, they're all, they're all connected. And I suppose, in, for me, in the water space, it's, it's hard. When, when water was separated from land to become a commodity, our old people could not understand what was going on. Why, why would you separate land and water? Because land is useless without the, uh, the water. And that's the hardest thing for them to comprehend. But in a modern-day context, we've got to try and manage the landscape as a whole, and we will always promote that um, as, as Aboriginal people. And, you know, we've, we're all infiltrated the system, and we're, we're trying to bring it from the inside, I suppose you could say. But caring for, for country is our custodial responsibility. We have a um, customary... Customary, not custodial. That's jail. Um, <laughs> customary obligation to protect country. 
That is our, our job as Aboriginal people most of the time. You know, that's what I believe, is that my job is to do what I can for water. That, that's my calling anyway. Yeah, thanks, Brad. Um, so following on... <laughs> so following on from what you were saying just then around um, the kind of the way in which governments silo, the way in which we care for land into different departments that don't speak to each other and don't use the same systems, and keeping this in mind about how how a third of the global population resides in cities and our cities are kind of growing at an insane rate, how do we, as Aboriginal people ensure that conservation of significant habitats and cultural landscapes within our urban zones, especially our urban growth zones? I suppose the, the culture has to change from not our perspective. We're always been here. We're always going to be here. We're not going anywhere. Um, and for Aboriginal people, it's, we're just part of the landscape. We're here. We're ready. And I suppose it's, it's the culture of development and... And society needs to change to come and talk and listen um, because I think that, that's the way it's... Aboriginal people see the landscape with a different set of eyes and I think it's something that is, is important to, to understand because, like, you, you know, you look here and you see concrete and structures and channels and bridges, but I suppose Aboriginal people see the, what it was like in the dreaming. You know, they, they see that, they feel it, they sing that. You know, we heard these songs today and cleansing the water, the floods that come. And I think that's, that's important for Aboriginal people to be up front, especially in the planning process, to be part of that, to, to, to re... Oh, bring back... Bring back country, you know, to what... We're never going to get it back to what, what it was. You know, that's never going to happen. But I think if we can uh, move it to a, you know, like getting rid of concrete channels of, of moving water fast through, through urban landscapes, you know, and bringing back wetlands and things like that. I think if we can bring that back into, into modern landscapes, you know, I think we're, we're on our way. Yeah. Can I just um, add to the, um, your comment on we see country differently? Like, I'll look at the city behind us and I won't see the buildings. I'll see the landscape of what is underneath all that concrete. Like, just um, over the other side of the river over there is Birung Ma. That was a really well-known gathering place for Aboriginal people from all over to follow the eel run. The, the eels were plentiful in the river and people would come to exchange marriage, settle politics and trade. So what we do today to honour that practice is we have recreated, along with um, the Melbourne Festival and Ilbidri Theatre Company, is the Coolin, Eastern Coolin have come together to recreate the Tenderum ceremony. So we're bringing everyone together. They bring gifts they bring um, a message stick as a gift. They put their, a stick from their country onto... Or not a stick, a bough of, um, say, cherry ballard or uh, managum leaves to put on the ceremonial fire. So we're still keeping that tradition alive by doing it on the same kind of area that it happened for so many generations. And it hasn't happened for over 180 years till about five years ago. And I think it's an important thing to make the people in Melbourne, especially all the, the locals that may not know the Aboriginal history, a lot of the international tourists seem to hang around the CBD a lot too. So we need to make our culture present and relevant rather than having some beautiful artwork dotted everywhere and having no signage to sig signify the, the importance of what that actual artwork is all about. And also the barrack building, um, I was listening to Libby Porter yesterday speak about it and it's a beautiful building. It's got um, his face on there. It's very beautiful. But the bottom layer is full of all the old brewery photos because it's on an old brewery site. So no connection to who Barak is on the side of the building. And also the Shrine of Remem Remembrance. You can see it from there and you can look back this way. But it's very ironic that the shrine never, um, in the wars never recognised Aboriginal soldiers. So I think things that need to be put in the city to recognise Aboriginal people need to have get rid of that sort of tick-the-box mentality, oh, we've consulted or we've put some Aboriginal art. We need to have it more... Well, when there's an artwork, people are going to walk past and go, what the hell's that? What's that pretty thing? It looks nice. But we need to make that story relevant and keep our culture present in the city. Uh, I definitely agree with those, those past two things. I think there's two other important things that an Aboriginal voice can bring to these conversations about uh, the city and sustainability and what's happening in the future. And one of those is to help better understand the consequences of the things we've done in the past. 
What has been the consequence of building cities like this, of polluting our landscapes? What is the consequence of those things? And an Aboriginal voice can help us better understand what was before so we can see what has changed, so understand those consequences better and understand those consequences on a landscape level, not just on a site-specific level. So I think that's really important. The other thing we can bring with an Aboriginal voice is to help change what we see as the value in some of those places, change our values about those things. And it's not just about bringing an Aboriginal voice to that because I would hate that anyone would just do things because they think, oh, just because the Aboriginal people said it, that's why we're going to do it. To me, it's about us working together to shift all of our values. So we're working towards the same values. We value the same things and we can work out those were the consequences of what we've done. This is what we recognise we value. So how do we work more to achieve those values and change those consequences? I think that's, that can be summed up in um, two definitions of two words. Collaboration and consultation. Consultation means oh, I've met someone, talked to an elder and then done the project and brought it back to the community. Look what I've done. It's very beautiful. Or collaboration. You can't really misunderstand the definition of collaboration. It means you're working with someone from the very beginning all the way through and what is most important, you keep working with them after it's completed. So um, I don't really like the word consultation. It's been used a lot on Aboriginal people. <laughs> The other one is engaged. We're tired of being engaged. We want to get married. So I guess as on that theme of consultation, collaboration, marriage, um, Aboriginal knowledge... <laughs> no, thanks. Um, Aboriginal knowledge is not often seen as an equal form of knowledge or not even acknowledged as a knowledge source especially in academic settings where you have to peer-review papers, things like that. And, and you three have been at quite an academic... Um, I don't know. I'm not an academic. <laughs> um, so I just wanted to ask you, why is, it considered, why is it important to consider Aboriginal knowledge? And do you have examples of where contributions from Aboriginal knowledge and other forms of knowledge have come together to produce meaningful, meaningful research outcomes? I'm happy to go first this time. Uh, I think there's lots of different examples of those sorts of things. There's one that springs to my mind, uh, which I'm going to talk about, which is related to the waterway we have back over here. And you'll correct me if you anything you disagree with. Uh, yeah. Uh, but it actually comes from some information I learned down at uh, McRae Homestead, down at Mornington Peninsula. Uh, and there was some records there from the McRae family that, of knowledge that had been passed down to them from the Aboriginal community about... This waterway over here, Port Phillip, uh, what would you call it? Um, Nam. Nam, yep. Um, so Nam, there were stories around Nam that it wasn't always filled with water, that there was a time when it was empty of water and that there was just a little creek running through there and then this big event came and water rushed into that space. And that was a story that the Aboriginal people were telling and that was recorded by the McRae's. And sadly, I think it got more credence within what the researchers wanted to do because it was actually written down by a white person. It just being knowledge that was passed on, it might not have had as much credence to it, but because it was written down, people started looking into that and realised that, yes, in the last thousand years, Nam was reduced to a tiny little lake. That's the scientific evidence has shown those things. And so this story that was passed on, this knowledge, wasn't some made-up thing. It was something that science could go and check and validate and find out, yes, that was the case. So we can use this knowledge that's been passed on across generations as a starting point to confirm these things, not to see them as, as fanciful stories, but something that happened and that can give us a better understanding about our places and through that a better understanding of the consequences of what has happened. And just following on from that story as well, because uh, of the geology part of the um, study I was doing, they showed this uh, map um, of... What, like, I suppose the um, water scientists have them quite a bit. They have, like, models that show you when the water level rises, what will actually go under the sea level and all that. Uh, she had... This student had a, a map of how Port Phillip Bay used to look back in time, and it was a braided river system, and it went all the way to Tasmania. So you can... And they did core testing and everything, and they, so they found all the... Um, Oh, what were the trees? The trees that lived a long time ago? <laughs> um, so it backed up that creation story. And there's two stories that how uh, Port Phillip Bay was filled up. And it's got to do with... One's got to do with uh, two little boys playing. Um, and another one's about the magic water in the Tarnook. So there's two different versions. One's, I think, told by Billa Bellary and one's told by Barak. So our creation stories, I love when they link up and they get evidenced 
by science, but I don't like when science goes, look at our new discovery. Wow. Or uh, recently there's an article about um, this hawk um, carrying fire and dropping it in the grass so it, it um, benefits itself to get all the, the food that it, it can. You know, when the grass burns, all the little creatures come out. And they're like, look, let, look at our discovery. It's like, well, we knew that a long time ago. We knew that in our creation stories that Bunjil's two helpers, the hawks, would carry fire and drop it on the grass to burn country of the bat. So um, one day they'll twig onto that, that it was already known. <laughs> yeah, just to further add, that was, that's a great example where sea level rise was validated and the story um, linked to sea level rise. And, you know, they can, I think they put it at around 7,500 years old, that story. So it was sort of the end of the last ice age. And there's other stories around um, that are getting validated, which is, which is the tough bit, and I suppose, for, for some of our knowledge holders, their science is proven. You know, we're still here. We've survived changes in climate or climate change, climate variation, sea level rise, droughts. We're still here. We're on the driest inhabited continent on Earth, 70% semi-arid. Without surface water, you've got to have knowledge of groundwater. And I suppose that, that sort of knowledge set is there. And sometimes it, it saddens me because a lot of that does... A lot of that's going to the grave and not being told. Um, and I suppose it's, it's you know, my generation that I hope to, to do my bit to try and collect some of that knowledge. I know it's not the best way to do it in, in science. Like science itself, the culture of science might need to change as well. So for me to reference my traditional knowledge won't be accepted in a science journal. Won't be accepted. So I've had it knocked back a few times at peer review. No, no, you need a reference point. Oh, my great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, he was at this place and he, he was at this river and that river changed and now it's a paleo channel. So that's, you know, that's 10,000 years ago. So you know, things like that are there in, a, in our knowledge set but they're not, they're not accepted by science yet. And it takes scientists to validate that. And I suppose one of my roles will be to try and validate some of that, some of our knowledge. That's why I think we're doing our PhDs to fight the system from the inside, right? <laughs> I'm just going to add to that, that I think a lot of times when people look at issues around Aboriginal knowledge, it can be easy sometimes, I think, for outsiders to see it as some sort of other. Uh, and that happens a lot, I think, with engagement between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people. And I think... There can be some good that comes in recognising differences, but I think there's often more value in recognising the similarities of breaking down that otherness. And when I look at Aboriginal knowledge and that's passed on across generations, one of the key ways I like to think of it is that if you've lived in a house for a long time, right, you know all the little quirks about that house, right? You know that this door, if you want to shut it without it creaking, you've got to, like, shut it just this way, then it won't creak. And this other door, if you want to open it, you've got to jiggle it just this right way, Right? You know those things because you lived in that house for, you know, maybe 10 years and, you know, your kids might grow up there so you teach them those little tricks about that house and they'll grow up and they'll be able to teach their kids that little trick about that house. We've got tricks we know about our houses that have been passed on for 40,000 years and that's what Aboriginal knowledge is. And I think by breaking down that otherness of recognising it's just as this is knowledge about places passed on across generations and it can help bridge those gaps. Yeah, so that... My next question kind of follows on, and you've all touched on it, but I guess it's, it's important for the non-Indigenous people here. Um, so how do non-Indigenous people in, in urban research or in other sort of research capacities, how do they engage with Aboriginal knowledge in a way that doesn't exploit our knowledge or appropriate our knowledges? Uh, I'm, I'm living that at the moment. So I suppose I've entered a space... I'll, been in the water space for 20, 20 odd years, but working for government, working in research, you know, well, there are people that, you know, there's, there's good people out there that want to support you, that want to do things for you, but I suppose it's, it's understanding some of the protocols around that space as well is important because so, sometimes I've found, you know, yep, yeah, I've got a supporter, I'm going to use this person to, to, to help progress the cause and Sometimes they might try and take over, and that's the bit that we don't like. And then in the water space for me, I got tired of hearing what we don't have, review after review of what we should have, what we did have, 
but there was no Aboriginal voice in that. No one was, no Aboriginal person was taking that space. You know, we've got Reuben who's well and truly in that space now. Um, and, you know, I talk at conferences and, and things like that. So I'm, I'm being that voice for, for my mob to, to, to have their say in water. And I suppose that's the challenge now is that being in the Threatened Species Hub, there, there are researchers that do want to do some good stuff with the mob. And I suppose it's giving them the right tools to do it right. And ultimately, we want to work towards Indigenous-led research. That's, that's the aim of it, my aim anyway. Well, I think um, Aboriginal academics with PhDs are, PhDs are a threatened species. So we're going to change that too. And I think the way that we overcome all of that and get people to work with Aboriginal people is to stop writing about us, stop researching us, let us write it, let us author it and lead the process and, and get into the policy writing uh, phase of it rather than... Like, I think Aboriginal people are the most researched people in the world, but how many Aboriginal authors have written policies for, um, for water, for landscape? It, it's got to change. I think that's a, a move that needs to happen to allow something to meaningful to start happening rather than a lot of talking and nothing happens. So, yeah, blackfella authorship... I think that's, that's exactly right. And the, the challenge I would give to anyone working in this space who was non-Indigenous was to every time you're working on something, have a think about, is this something I should be doing or should I be empowering an Aboriginal person to be able to do this themselves? And I know that's a question people ask sometimes and often the barrier is, but I don't have the time to be able to train that person up to get them to be able to do it. Well, if people on high, and I think it happens more and more now that people in higher positions are saying, this is important, uh, one of the things you can be feeding back up to that is saying, if this is important, then we need to change those time restrictions. We need to have more open-ended idea of what these time limits are because that's often the biggest hindrance in a lot of these things is people saying, if we just, we've got to get it by this deadline so we don't have enough time to train someone up to do it. Well, let's change those deadlines. Let's get rid of them. Uh, we don't need those deadlines if that's going to be hampering those sorts of things. Yeah, thanks, Ruben. So... With the Clean Air and Urban Landscapes Hub, one of the projects that, um, one of the major projects is this idea of bringing nature back into cities and so it's reintroducing species back into urban contexts. And that, globally, that is a, a movement that is often called rewilding, but at the Clean Air and Urban Landscapes Hub, we decided you can't really make it wild when it hasn't been wild for tens of thousands of years. And so... Those sorts of things are the conversations around language that we need to have. And part of that project is looking at all of the considerations, the economic, the, um, uh, the ecology, the cultural, and also the safety of, of the certain species that you're bringing back in. And so when, you're making these, when you have these decision-making things, often culture falls out of these things, the cultural implications of specific animals or uh, species and so how do we start shaping the conversation that it really puts culture at the forefront and making sure that these things are considered? Well I just happen to be working on something exactly related to that at the moment. <laughs> uh, we uh, put a submission in for the North Gardens in Ballarat so you've got Lake Wendery and it was empty for a lot of years and then it filled up with a lot of rain and um, I think they use bore water if it's getting low. But what they've done to... Because uh, a lot of the stormwater used to just flow directly into it, they've created three ponds. Um, one... Um, it's, and it's filt they're filt filtration ponds. So what they've noticed is that the uh, water rat has come back, the eels have come back, the ducks and the swans. And they're all related to our creation stories. All up in Ballarat... Uh, the Wadawurrung people has got the black swan and the water rat there in their stories. And what I found when I was walking through there, how clean it was. The, there was fish jumping. There was, it was like it was a man-made uh, filtration system, but it takes me back to imagining what it would have been like in natural times when it was a natural filtration system and the water was so clean by the time it got into that. It used to be a swamp there. So what... Uh, We've done, we've come up, we've been um, commissioned to do a master plan. So I think looking at urbanisation in the city and how to bring back some kind of cultural knowledge into the landscape is get Aboriginal people to write the master plans. So what we've decided, we've just started, is uh, because there's three lakes, we're relating them to the three mountains that are around there, the, the environment around there's volcanic plains, there's old volcanoes, and we want to maybe focus on that water at. Rather than this garden here has got all the European trees, 
I know that um, many people wouldn't want the European trees chopped down because they've got historical significance. Uh, so we've got to build around those because there is shared history in Australia. So I think by, again, getting Aboriginal people in there from the very first thought of something and getting them to design the master plans of whatever redevelopment that you're going to do. Because I can imagine up here in the Botanic Gardens, there's a, um, a little wetland, a little swamp. Make that into a filtration system. Get the water rats back. Get the platypus back. Get the eel. There is eels in there at the moment. But you can imagine nature takes its course with that filtration and it makes it look back like it's um, a natural water source again. So I think, yeah, getting us to do it, that's the only way. Sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I agree with all of that. And I think it's, it's the upfront engagement. A lot of the times a project will kick off... I've seen it time and time again where there's a lot of money thrown at these projects um, and then down the track they think, oh, shit, the Aboriginal people. <laughs> quick, do a socio-cultural study. Quick, someone. And then I suppose that's the challenge. Or you'll find that it's out of scope or it's not in the terms of reference. So I suppose it's making sure that it's, it's, it's up front in those terms of reference that Indigenous knowledge may be a part of it, you know, like... Threatened species are in our cities. They're around us. They're, you know, cities are hotspots. They, they turn up and if you give them the right environment, they will survive and thrive. So, and I think it's a lot of the times in the water space too, you add water, the country will repair itself. You don't add black water, you know, the no oxygen stuff. You want good, clean, healthy water, the right amount at the right time. Aboriginal people can inform that. No, there's no, no two ways about it. They can inform where the, you know, the big floods... Where the, where the wetlands were, where the stories go, where the dreamings are, where the springs are, you know. So that's, that sort of stuff is, is out there. And I think it's, if it's up front, there's a good start. But you've got to maintain that marriage, I suppose you could say. Keep it going. And I just want to quickly add to that. I'm sort of taking over. Sorry, Ruben. <laughs> no. Um, even knowledge can be found in songs, old songs. One of William Barrack's old songs, it's called Corroboree Song. And it's relating to... Uh, three different birds. It's the uh, Gunawara, the swan, uh, Burndangala and Wajalea. They're two different language names for the pelican. And the Genanwil, the duck. So the duck is the mother of the platypus. Uh, Gunawara, the swan, is Bundrel's wife. And the pelican is a long-distance travelling bird. So when, like, Lake Eyre fills up, they just automatically know there's water in there, so they travel. So this tells the story of the wetland songlines of Victoria. So you can... Get all of that extra knowledge in when you're finding those old historic re references, and um, I think it's amazing that, yeah, language, songs, and all of that has all these hidden, uh, all this hidden information that it's a it's a goldmine that uh, I, I bet you will find a lot, lot more that will help um, in urban planning and and things like that. So I think that's a really good example to show that. And I guess building on that idea, the idea that sometimes there's a long list of things people want to include and. Our indigenous knowledge gets dropped off that list um, when there's too many other things to do. Uh, part of the reason I think that happens is because it's just seen as something to tick the box. You had to do it because you had to do it. But if we can change and get people to recognise the value of it through the type of things that Manny was saying, so people aren't doing it just to tick a box, they're doing it because they recognise the value that it brings to their project, that will help it be elevated and not be forgotten. And I think in terms of working out what we should be doing to, as you said, rewilding is no good because it wasn't wild. We were looking after the landscape for tens of thousands of years, but that the things that we did have here for tens of thousands of years might not be the right things anymore because the climate has changed so much. And so it might be working with the local group to connect with a group from further north about what is in their climate from that time that might be suitable for this place now because things have changed so much. I just had to, like... Archaeology is, is a prime example of when development needs advice. Because most of the time, Aboriginal people may not be included up front and an archaeologist or an Aboriginal group would be called when the bulldozer's at the scarred tree or the, or the grave. But if upfront planning, they may have found that prior and be able to protect it. But because you've got a bulldozer sitting there and it's costing them thousands of dollars per day... You need an archaeologist, you need a traditional owner to come in and tell them it's, it's, it's value. Everything's valuable for Aboriginal people. Like, I, you know, whether it's an artefact scatter, a, a burial, a, a scarred tree, a carved tree, 
a, you know, a natural spring. They've all got their value for Aboriginal people. And I suppose that's the bit that doesn't get celebrated, you know. It should be celebrated because, you know, Australia has one of the oldest living cultures on the planet and we don't celebrate it. I don't know why. Yeah. So my next question is that many culturally significant plants and animals are considered threatened species. Um, do you have any, and, and Brad, you put up some, had some really good points that I'll let you say, but do you have any examples of where good urban research or policy has worked to protect those culturally significant species? Me? <laughs> no, I was more adding to, to Maddie's point. It was more about not all culturally significant threatened species are threatened species, but culturally significant species may not be threatened species. So it's a sort of vice versa. So an example might be is that a mob might have... An example up on the north coast of New South Wales, there's a mob there that find a certain species of wallaby highly culturally significant. It's part of their dreaming. It's, it's a totem for a lot of their mob. And, but because it's common around them, it doesn't get any threatened species money. So it's rare on their country, and they want it back but they can't get any support to get that, that species back. And as, but the other thing for, I should say, for researchers is, especially threatened species researchers, is that some of these species are quite tasty. So there's a moral dilemma for the researcher <laughs> to let the bomb know that this species is back on their country because there's going to be a, a fire cooking for that species. Um, I'll just we'll ask the, next, the last question and then we'll open it up um, to the floor and then I think Mandy will have to leave. She's got another performance. Um, so I'll just ask this last question and, and then we'll open it up. So my last question is around... Aboriginal people have already put a lot of emotional labour and intellectual labour into publishing works, putting out resources. And so do you have any resources, anything you'd like to shout out, anything you've worked on that people here today can go home and look at? Language, 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 language. I've done a lot of language resources, but it's a funny one because we want to empower our own community to learn our language and be able to speak it confidently before we let everyone else uh, learn it before us. A little girl, like I helped uh, start up the Thornbury Primary School Language Program, and this little girl came up to us last year and, and she said to me in language, hello, my name is blah, 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 I'm eight years old, I know I'm a girl in language and I'm like, wow, that's amazing. But then it made me sad because my girls, oh, my girls know a little bit because they're like they're with me, like they have to learn something because they're with me. But a lot of my family and my community don't, wouldn't have a clue how to speak any of that language. So, um, yeah, there's a, yeah, it's a funny one, that one, but I've done heaps of resources. But there is one resource that the Wurundjeri community have actually ticked that can be shared and it's a Woiwurrung, or Woiwurrung language cards and it was done for the Yarra Valley Kinders and they were basically, I think they printed 60 of them and um, they were gone in one day so they're out of um, publication but how organisations can help get that out there is funding to actually reprint more because a lot of Kinders have contacted me because I've seen it somewhere. So those little resources can, that with the tick from Wurundjeri uh, able to be shared publicly, so any funding bodies out there can um, assist in printing those resources that will help the younger ones grow up going, oh, well, there is Aboriginal people in Melbourne. Uh, I think another great resource to start with for people is actually to start from home. Uh, don't necessarily think about learning about some people some other place, but start from where you live. Make sure you know who the traditional owners are on the land in which your house is. Who are the owners of the place where you are living today? Uh, what is the name of that river where you walk your dog? Uh, what are the stories connected to those places? And a lot of that information you can find from your local council. Lots of local councils have done that research, they've worked with the traditional owners and they have that information on your local council website. So I encourage you to start off going there, find out about where you live so you can connect with that and then that's just a starting point though. That's great resources to start enabling you to have a conversation with someone because that's the best way to learn this stuff by sitting down with someone and having a chat. But that's a great place to start. Learn about where you live from your local council. Uh, yes. <laughs> Language is important. I'd, I'd agree with that 100%. Uh, I, you know, I grew up knowing 
body parts and all the rude words, um, feelings and things like that. So I can't construct a sentence, but that's one of my life goals is, is to try and, uh, you know, learn language and then part, and, you know, have my kids alongside me as well. But I, I need to mention the Threatened Species Recovery Hub. They're making me, be, allowing me to be here today. Um, we're, we're pretty young as a, as a hub in the Indigenous Engagement uh, process. So I suppose it's, there's an Indigenous engagement strategy. They got myself as, a, as an officer. Uh, I've established uh, an Indigenous reference group. So we're sort of on, we're early on in the journey. Um, resources are, are going to come thick and fast. A lot of our research is remote. So there's a lot of mobs on Indigenous protected areas, ranger groups. Um, that's the other bit I should say, is that rangers are doing this country a service. They are caring for country on a shoestring, and they're making Australia look good again, you know, and they're doing it for bugger all, but, but they love it. That's, you know, that's their um, customary obligation, you know, they're, they're doing it. Um, and I suppose some of the research will come out, you know, with the bilby, um, we've got the betong in Canberra being reintroduced, um, we've got the um, what, quolls going back into Burdaree National Park on the south coast of New South Wales. So there's, there's, there's a lot of projects happening and I think in, in the near future there'll be some really good resources and research coming out. So I suppose keep your eye out for that. Yeah, thank you guys so much for coming. And Mandy, I know you have to head off. So if we could get a round of applause for Mandy. Thank you for listening to me. Um, I do ramble sometimes, but I, I really love sharing this, this information with people that are interested and, and with these two guys as well. So thank you for having me today. So now I have to run. <laughs> thank you. So we have the opportunity to take some questions from the audience and Steph has a roaming mic. So um, if you have a question, please speak it into the microphone because this event is being recorded today. That was awesome. Thanks very much. Um, I've got a question about threatened species and language. So it seems um, the little I understand is that um, not every species that we scientifically describe has an, as a, a word, as an Aboriginal word. So does that mean that the management of threatened species using Indigenous knowledge is limited to those species where there is a, an overlap, where there is an Aboriginal name and a scientific name? Yeah. I, I, I you know, think in terms of, you know, fish person, um, a, a galaxid. You know, you've got all, you know, dozens of species of galaxids, yet... I believe Gunajmara has one name for Galaxid. So does that mean using Gunajmara knowledge is only able to support threatened species management for that as a generic group? That, that could be... Um, it all depends on the, on the lo local mob. Like, when you, when you say Indigenous or Aboriginal, you know, that's, that's just the way they want us. We're all the same. Um, but every mob will have its own story and have its own connection to species. And... But if they, you know, there are stories of, I've come across where they're talking about fish in rivers that used to be there and they haven't been there as long as living records. So they used to be there, there's stories about them, um, but I think it's, it all depends on the, the locality and the mob. I can't talk for anyone else other than my own mob. So it's more about making sure, starting that conversation, you know, if you've got an interest in, but it also, to be a threatened species, it's got to be on the list. So if you, it's not on the list, you can't get any money and you can't do a recovery plan and all that sort of stuff. So I suppose it's, there's, there, like that example I gave before, that there are species that are rare on some people's country, but they're not threatened species as well. So there's, there's, there's that challenge. But I think you're probably right to a point. There are certain species that were highly significant they will have stories, they will have names, but that's purely mob to mob, yeah. Yeah, I think um, it's, not, it's not saying that if we don't have a language word for that specific type, if we're, like we don't have a language word for a barred galaxis, for instance, 
it doesn't mean we can't protect it. it. It's more about talking about what are the principles. And so when you're doing a, a threatened species action plan, for instance, there's a bunch of, of actions underneath that around how you do fire management, things like that. And so it might be bringing a more holistic view of Aboriginal knowledge and Aboriginal ways of, of managing land into that threatened species action plan rather than at a species by species basis. That'll be also the same for water too. So there's language for water places. So, but that water place is there because the water's there and that place is there. You take away the water, that language term disappears. So I suppose if a natural spring dries up, your bit of language that describes that place disappears with it. Thank you. Um, so obviously we live in an increasingly digital age with much, much more access to information than we've had in the past. Um, and indigenous uh, communities which have often had their culture, their knowledge, their language stymied and marginalised um, have an opportunity now to take advantage of technology to actually get their message out and start integrating that knowledge with what we would consider, you know, with modern um, academic methods and whatnot. Um, how do you think, what sort of opportunities do you think there are to use technology to advance Aboriginal knowledge? And do you think that should be driven by government or by local communities? I think there's definitely lots of opportunities. Uh, I've got a few apps on my phone that are different language apps, uh, apps that are there that have got stories in language. Uh, and I think that's a really powerful thing to be able to do through technology, and that's a way of sharing it with lots of people. But again, it's like the resource with the local council. It can't be the only thing. It can be something that helps start things and supplement actual engagement with people. But I think that can be a really powerful tool for further embedding these things into every, everyday life. You don't want to ignore the digital because you're going to get left behind. But you want to have that but include it in other things. As to who should fund it, I don't mind someone. Uh, yeah, look, apps. I've got an app on my phone that has my language as well, so you can put in the English one and it'll, it'll tell you what it is in written, but it also, there's a voice, voiceover that comes and tells you how to say it. So, you know, that sort of stuff. But also there's, you know, there's those communities, especially, let's say, the East Coast, Southeast Coast, where a lot of the, the impact of colonisation, invasion happened, you know. So the, they took the brunt of loss of culture and identity and for the wave to move across, you know, it was a bit later on by the time they moved across the big continent of Australia. So a lot of the mobs on the East Coast struggle like, you know, like Maddie's mob, you know, like they, they're, they're struggling to, to, to be who they are on their own country, you know. So it's, and it's same for my mob, you know, there was massacres and all that sort of stuff, but I think it's technology, you know, you can Google anything you want these days and you can find Dr. Google will tell you whatever you want and he'll tell you how to get there. Uh, or she, I don't know, is it a man or woman? I don't know. Genderless. <laughs> Genderless. <laughs> um, you know, and I suppose this day and age, Aboriginal people do have a lot more access to their stories and, you know, they can find, you know, I can go to Ayatsis in Canberra and order my uncle's, or well, my great uncle's talking in language. On, I can get a CD, MP3, them talking in language and then you'll get the transcript as well. You know, that sort of digitising... Our culture is, is a benefit for us and yeah, my mum's generation completely removed from who she was. My nan's generation, you know, she had bits and pieces and her, her, her father was, you know, he was still doing cultural stuff. So, you know, there's almost, one, let's say, one and a half generations wiped out, almost. Um, it's just now finding what we have to rebuild our language, rebuild our songs... And, you know, one of my uncles always said that if you go back on country and listen, the stories are there and you'll hear them.
Does that work? Yep. That's good. Okay. Uh, when I was growing up, I remember a book by uh, an author, Judith Wrightson, I think it was, The Nargan and the Stars. And that kind of opened up my uh, uh, exposure to Indigenous mythology about kind of landscape in a way which I hadn't come across at all. But I've subsequently learned how controversial that was about appropriating and representing that knowledge. Um, so I was just wondering, because a lot of academics are scared that they're an alien in an alien landscape when it comes to engaging with Indigenous knowledge, um, how that fear of doing the wrong thing uh, is inhibiting, how we can overcome that inhibition for a lot of uh, the academics to appropriately and respectfully engage with the new synthesis. So I think that's, that's definitely something I hear a lot with lots of different people about a fear of going into this space. Uh, and there's sometimes fear for lots of different re reasons. There's sometimes fear about maybe saying the wrong thing or not doing it exactly the right way. Uh, and I think for some of those fears, the best way to um, deal with that is just to suck it up and realise that you're going to do something wrong. Uh, there's not always a right way to do everything. There's so many different groups that you're never going to please everybody. So that's, that's one approach, and I think that's sometimes the right way to go about it, that you just have to do what you think might be the best thing and you'll learn from the mistakes you make because trying to do it perfectly every time will mean you achieve nothing at all. The other side of that is if you are trying to work on something specific with a specific community, the best way to make sure that it's not appropriation or done in the wrong way is to do that with someone else. And if you want to look at that from a risk management standpoint, you could say, well, you're just going to share the blame with this person because then if you get it wrong, they were part of it too. But hopefully you're not going to get it wrong because you're working with them and you're going to do it collaboratively rather than you doing it on those people. So that with, that helps break down that idea of that, that appropriation. And, and by doing so, empowering those people as part of that as well. Yeah, I agree with that totally. And I think it's, it's important that there is a history of, of researchers and, and um, anthropologists and linguists, you know, going out and taking a lot of knowledge, you know. There, there, there's a lot of our old people are still burnt by that. So you need to be wary of some of the, the history as well. Um, so, you know, there, there is a lot of stuff that's been taken and now, you know, someone's got a PhD with someone else's knowledge, you know. And that's, that's the bit a lot of our old people, and I suppose it's... I think uh, Mandy said that, you know, we're highly consulted, you know. We, I call it, in the city, it's the Camry convoy of government agencies and researchers waiting, lined up waiting to talk to the mob, and in the bush it's the, the Land Cruiser. So it's a Land Cruiser convoy just waiting to, to, for their, their ticket to come in to talk to the mob. We've got some money, we want to do some work with you, but this is the question I want answered. That's the bit of research that needs to change. Is it, I found that in the Threatened Species Recovery Hub, is that some of the researchers are going to the mobs, building a relationship, and asking them what they want answered. You know, and that could be around the species, and that, that's a different... you know paradigm shift for them, you know, and it's, it's them being out of their comfort zone, but it's allowing the mobs to say, this animal's important, can we get it back on country, how do we do it? And then, you know, th that sort of stuff is, is really important. I've seen that, as I said, in this threatened species, and it's, it, some of it's working really well. And you build those relationships, and I suppose when they come and present, you'll have the non-Aboriginal researcher with Aboriginal people presenting at conferences, you know, it's dual authorship and things like that. So it's it's shared, shared knowledge, it's, it's shared authorship, it's giving them credit for what they, what they know. Yeah. I'm just going to ask, um, Maddie, would you be able to talk about um, the Indigenous-led research in the Call Hub? Oh. <laughs> so, um, in, the, in the Clean Air and Urban Landscapes Hub, which you'll often hear us referring to as the Call Hub, but I've got to stop using acronyms. Um, so we have a, there is a project that is entirely looking at what does Indigenous-led research mean? And I guess we always had this concept of Indigenous-led research being with, for and by Indigenous people. But how does that actually work within the current constructs of academia that we have today? How does that work in um, reporting milestones and what does that actually mean and what do, what do Aboriginal people actually want to know in urban and ecological research and so there's this, there's this project going on in it's a, um, a Torres Strait Islander woman Lauren Arabina who's looking at it at the moment and she's um, just working, working on kind of 
bringing together industry and universities and community to start opening up this conversation around what, how does it work, what do Aboriginal people want to know and how do we feasibly make this happen? And so that's a really exciting um, project and it's been really fortunate that we've been able to be given the space to have a project that doesn't have milestones or we don't really even have... We don't know what we're doing and it's been amazing to be able to be given that space. Um, a lot of you who work in research or in um, that sort of project space will know that you need to come with a fully formed idea and have these research goals and research milestones and how I'm going to achieve it. But the way we came to this project was, well, we don't know. This is why we're doing the project. We want to find out how does this work, what do Aboriginal people want to know and how would we feasibly in the future structure Indigenous-led research? And I know Brad's been doing a lot of work in this space as well. Yeah, um, I'll give you my ethics experience. Everyone, everyone, anyone in academia understands ethics. And because I wanted to talk to humans, I had to go through a, a pretty... It took me three goes. And because those humans were Aboriginal as well, it was even more high risk... So I had to go, I had to prove to them that I was going to do the right thing by my own people. Um, and I got a note from my mum and attached it to my ethics application <laughs> to say that I'm allowed to talk to my family and I'll, I'll, I'll do a good job at it. And I got an ethics approval just before Christmas. But I think ethics, I don't, I don't, I know it's a process, it's there, we have to do it. And I like that the way we talk to Aboriginal people is you know, it is perceived as high risk because they want, universities want to reduce risk and they want to do it right. So I've got no problems with that, but I don't think the ethics system could handle an Aboriginal person talking to Aboriginal people. That was the bit they couldn't comprehend. So that was that Indigenous-led research that I had to get a note from my mum to say, I'll do it all right. I think another important thing to be aware of within this space, and it's something I have to deal with a fair bit in the work that I do, is oftentimes I have people coming to me and wanting the Aboriginal perspective on something. And I think it's really important that we get rid of this word, the, and replace it with an. I can't give you the Aboriginal perspective on anything. I can give you an Aboriginal perspective, and that's what a lot of us are able to do. But so when we try and get some research to give the Aboriginal perspective on X or Y, you're setting yourself up for an impossible task. If you set it up as we want an Aboriginal perspective on this, you're going to be able to succeed in that. So changing the the to an an, I think, is really important. Totally agree with that, because... Another experience, uh, I was on a national committee, I was the Aboriginal representative and it was an Australian-New Zealand standard and they had a Maori, he was the Maori representative. Um, but what we did was whenever we produced something, we, we went to the committee uh, and said, this is my perspective approved by my elders. And Roku went to his mob and said, this is my perspective approved by my iwi, his elders then you go out and consult with all Aboriginal people. It's not our job. We've given you something. You go and do, it. Go and do the job now. So I think we'll take one, more, one or two more questions depending. So we've got one up here um, and then we'll he um, finish up. Um, thank you. This, um, this is just that your honesty has been fantastic today. Thank you. Um, I see, I guess my role is I'm an educator and I work with young Indigenous people that want to enter into science. Um, I would love to hear from you, all of you, um, how you, what advice you would give these young people that I teach, because I'm not Indigenous and I'm attempting to empower them to become um, Indigenous people, you know, strong Indigenous people and scientists. Uh, how, do, how did you get to where you are and not leave your indigeneity at the door of academia? Yeah, good question. Uh, I think I realised that I could do it. Um, my sort of journey in science was at year 11 I was told I'd never be good at science and maths. Uh, I finished year 12, got into Bachelor of Science on my own accord, but I had a few science type subjects, geology and biology and things like that, but I had maths, we used to call it maths in the garden, we were sort of just counting bugs. Uh, we weren't, you know, and then I get to first year uni and I'm doing science maths, you know, which was equivalent to, say, three or four unit maths at, at, at high school level. I had no idea what calculus was. So I, you know, first, first year, no idea. Um, and then they put 
physics lectures on the same time as happy hour. Who does that? That is... <laughs> but you should go to physics lectures. <laughs> you, happy hour will always be there. Um, but for me, it was realising that I had a passion for science um, and I wanted to do science, but it was maintaining that. And I had support around me, but it was quite lonely. You know, it, was, it, it still is lonely in the science space. There's not many Indigenous scientists. We're starting to, to build. And then my current, you know, my other passion is, is talking to that gener a generation of Indigenous kids that may consider science. And I give them my perspective of my journey. You know, I, you know I'd say that I've heard some of the oldest stories on the planet about water. You know, I've, you know, I don't wear a suit every day. Um, I, I can go out on country and listen to these elders, and and it's it's almost doing it an Aboriginal way, you know, like Indigenous methodology way. You know, we sit down and listen. They're comfortable on their country, and I get to do that. That's my job to to listen to the old people, um, and, and you know, to generate opportunities to protect that knowledge as well. But I think it's hard because science isn't sexy. And it, it's hard to, to get kids interested in science, especially Indigenous kids, because they, all they see is the issues with social issues, unemployment and legal aspects, um, health, education. So they, a lot of kids, you know, that see that issue and they want to they do something about that. But I try to give my perspective of science and what that's done for me. To, it just sort of gets them thinking about science as, as a pathway and I think it's up to, you know, places like research organisations, CSIRO, and allowing those pathways to be catered for um, and, and allow them to be nurtured through, through research, you know. And I think, you know, I've, you know, I've had my ups and downs, but, you know, I've got back on the, got back on the, um, the horse, you know, the saying is, I've got back on the horse and, and kept sciencing on. Uh, I've got, I think, two contradictory bits of advice to give to you. Uh, one is, I think, is I spoke about otherness before, and I think that can be an issue for Aboriginal students as well, of seeing science as some other thing. And so helping to break that down, of recognising within their own culture, their own traditions, what the science is, and that can be a way of helping to fuel that passion and to maybe move into that space. And it can be a way for people who are in that space to stay connected to culture. But on the other side of that, I think it's also really powerful that we continue to support and encourage Aboriginal people engaged in all different fields that have got nothing to do with their Aboriginality. Uh, so I'm passionate about Ultimate Frisbee and I go off and do all sorts of Ultimate Frisbee things because that's got nothing to do with being Aboriginal. And if there's a young Aboriginal student that wants to be the first person to go to Mars, that's a fantastic thing we should be encouraging as well, that they don't have to be connected, uh, but they can be and that can be powerful in both different ways. Yeah, and I guess my last point on that is that with the otherness thing is that we need to remember our people uh, have been scientists and engineers and mathematicians for tens of thousands of years. Reuben's country has some of the most incredible and complicated um, aquaculture systems in the world with the eel traps down at Budgebim. So I think it's remembering that our culture is a scientific culture and that we were doing these things like damming up waterways and creating these... Um, fish traps and houses that worked with the weather. Um, and I'm sure you're all feeling the weather right now. So I think it's, it, it is a reminder that our old people were scientists. Um, and that, again, is about acknowledging Aboriginal knowledge and bringing that back as, as a valid form of knowledge and not saying, oh, there's Aboriginal people blundering around in the bush for tens of thousands of years. That wasn't the case at all. And so I think it's being proud of our scientific roots. So thank you, everybody, so much for coming. And thank you to our wonderful panellists and Mandy, who had to leave. Um, and I think, do we have... Oh, we have some gifts for our panellists. They're just on the other side of the room. <laughs> yeah, everybody gets a car. Under your seats, look under your seats. <laughs>